Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Today is Ask Harry Anything. I can't answer anything because my beat is the universe. I'm a philosopher. A philosopher studies the basic nature, the fundamental nature of the universe and man's relationship to it. <clears throat> so we have some questions already in the chat. Are most intellectuals today stuck on rationalism or empiricism? Rationalism, for those who are not familiar with the terminology, is the theory or the practice of using reason or what you think is reason without appeal to sensory perceptual evidence. Using reason to build castles in the air divorced from the specific concretes of life, the ivory tower. Now, obviously, ivory tower intellectuals tend to be ivory tower in their thinking. But the other side of the false alternative is concretes, sensory perception, this world, but to hell with theory. And in the Anglo-Saxon world, for the last two or 300 years, that has been the dominant attitude, the dominant philosophy. So the philosophers practice in their work rationalism, and what they advocate is pragmatism, particularly in the United States. Play it by ear, go with the flow. There are no absolutes. Be flexible. You see it most nauseatingly in foreign relations. It's always said we need diplomacy. We need talks. We need to get down and get to one-to-one -one face time with the leaders of the other countries. So we're going to travel to China. We're going to travel to meet Putin and it's, uh, before he invaded the Ukraine. That is on the premise that there are no absolutes, that what we learned yesterday about dictatorships doesn't apply, and we don't even have to use the term dictatorship. That's a concept. That's theoretical. We've got a man, Putin, who's there with certain needs and desires. Surely we can horse trade with him. We can give him a little bit of what he wants, and he'll give us a little bit of what we want. No. So the, in the Anglo-Saxon world, pragmatism is an empiricist philosophy on steroids. It's the beginning of the suicide of philosophy, which accelerated in the 20th century. I think we've turned a corner. I think we're coming out of it. I'm not wired into academia anymore, but the rumblings I hear from those who are still connected one way or another with the academic world are that people have somewhat come, I was going to say come to their senses, but that would be an empiricist way of looking at it, come to their reason, real reason, reason that's based upon integration and identification of the material provided by man's senses, not arbitrary starting points. I can't resist telling the story that Ayn Rand made up, not a story, but the analogy Ayn Rand made up to parody rationalist philosophers. 
somebody announces, one philosopher announces, since man has only two eyes, he can only see two things. And then two schools of thought derive from that rationalistically. Those who say there are only two things. The appearance of more things than two is an illusion. There are only two things. And the other school says, no. What's an illusion is that man has only two eyes. He has many eyes. And that's how he can see many things. So you see the arbitrary starting point of the rationalists and even the philosophers who advocate empiricism start from an arbitrary postulate. So I would say that their own methodology in philosophy is rationalist. The doctrines they come out with and urge us to live by or die by are empiricist. Uh, next question. I, re I remember Ayn Rand having a, an issue with the way the government recognizes and or treats franchises. Can you explain why? No, I can't because she didn't have an issue with that. By franchise, you mean like McDonald's, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, where there's one central corporation that leases out the name and the method and the advertising and you you own your mcdonald's but you have an agreement with the corporation that you can call it mcdonald's i don't know exactly what the details are but no she had no um, issue with that she was generally on the premise capitalists know how to make contracts better than armchair thinkers rationalistically can deduce about them. And as long as they're not using force on anyone, they're perfectly within their rights to make any terms they want. So uh, maybe you have something that you could put in the chat that explains what you're thinking, but I never heard that. Bitcoin can't be redeemed for a valuable or useful commodity. In my opinion, this alone will prevent it from becoming money. Thoughts? You have to distinguish two things. Bitcoin as a potential currency and the blockchain, which is the technology, the mathematics behind Bitcoin. From my limited understanding, blockchain technology is a very good thing and it is gaining ground all the time and will have a role forever in the way uh, transactions occur. Whether it will be Bitcoin or not is a um, another issue. But the philosophic point I make is Bitcoin will never stop inflation. Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency cannot possibly ever stop inflation. It is not an alternative to long-term to inflation. Why? Because if it were, it would be illegalized. And this is what's happening step by step. They're regulating it. They're subjecting it to government oversight. And 
There's no way to finance the welfare state except by printing money. That's why inflation can never be brought under control and will never be brought under control until the philosophy that worships need is replaced by a philosophy that worships man's life as a rational being, i.e. objectivism. And of course, that worship is not uh, meant in a religious sense, but in sense of highest value. If all you have to do is chant the most vulnerable among us, they need it. The haves versus the have-nots, the stinking billionaires and millionaires. What about the poor people who have to scrabble for a living or can't even make a living? They're the ones that we should be gearing society to. As long as you have that, you're going to have welfare state. As long as you have the welfare state, people are not going to put up with the taxes required to finance it 100%. So there's always going to be a resort to the printing press. And then that always creates problems which require, they think, it only actually only requires government to stop meddling with money and stop spending on uh, things other than defense. But they think it requires more government intervention to fix the problems of the last intervention. So if Bitcoin started to be a refuge in any significant way, not for the marginal half of 1% who use it now, it would be stopped. The government is not going to sit around and watch the welfare state crash around them, and people won't permit it. It's not just the government. It's not like government officials descended from Mars and took us over. The government officials represent the average man's social philosophy. I don't care whether you're conservative or leftist. You, uh, unless you're an objectivist, you endorse the principle behind welfare, which is that need, one man's need is a claim on the life and property of another until that's rejected, until you can have an ethics of rational selfishness there's going to be welfare, there's going to be expanding government, and there's going to be inflation, and, and nothing can stop it. Except better ideas. No technical, technological fix is going to stop it. Do you know about the Antikythera device? A little, yes. A very sophisticated ship navigating tool regarded as an early computer and also a theory of how ancient technology, Greek, gets lost. Yeah, I, th I thought it was also basically um, astronomical. It's based upon an understanding to a certain extent of the rotation of, as they saw it, of the heavens and the uh, exact relationship of the way that the various heavenly bodies appear in the sky. Now, actually, that apparent rotation is a change in, we think of it as a rotation of the Earth, but it's a relative rotation 
the Earth is rotating relative to the stars. It's true the stars are rotating relative to the Earth. You just look at the night sky a few nights in a row or even over a few hours. There's relative motion, there's relative rotation, but obviously the right way to conceptualize it on logical grounds is as the Earth turning and not the whole universe turning around the Earth. Uh, it's a theory, uh, it is an example of how ancient technology gets lost. Yes, yes, the Greeks, after Archimedes, the Alexandrian Greeks, were uh, making great strides. They had invented a thermopylae, I think it's called, a, a little steam engine. It wasn't an engine in the sense of pistons. It was a rotating globe that you put over a fire. It had water in it, and as the water boiled, this the steam came out jets on opposite sides of the thing and rotated it. It was never put to any useful purpose for two reasons. Number one, the Greeks were not big on material productive purposes. Even Aristotle thought the highest life was the life of contemplation. So they did not understand that the mind was the source of wealth, of practical material values, and that there was a huge upside waiting for the birth of technology and science. Second, bad philosophers had driven them to despair and they went Christian. The uh, you know, Roman Empire fell in 476 AD and the things that were, had been learned were considered sinful. So the Christians burned, the pagans and Christians burned the library at Alexandria, and it was considered a sin, the lust of the eyes, to pursue scientific technological knowledge. It was considered a sin to try and, quote, play God, as we put it now, and better your life on earth. So uh, yes, it gets lost when the ideas that are required to support material progress go out the window. Next one. Ideas for dissolving psychological blocks for clearer cognitive clarity. That's really more my wife's field. Um, I don't know what you got a redundancy there, clearer cognitive clarity. But basically, it's a mistake. I learned from her the idea that it's a mistake to think you've got to do some kind of mental surgery on yourself before you can think and achieve. The solution is to choose your values, set your goals, and focus on the truth the values, the things you want, and how to get them. Now, you do have to do a certain amount of remedial work, but uh, the old psychology was a premise psychology. You've got to uproot premises before you can uh, have self-esteem and achieve happiness. And that's not wholly wrong, but it's, it's not really 
wholly right either. You can do things to improve your life, improve your thinking, improve your monetary position even. Right now, despite psychological wrong ideas you formed in the past. Find what you want and go after it. Is there a trap in forming good habits that the habits can narrow your thinking into the automated habits? No. There are no traps except through errors, through wrong ideas. Forming good habits frees your mind to do more. Automatization is a means to wider thinking, wider integrations, leading to more automatization. So no, forming good habits, I, I wouldn't look at it that way. I would look at um, automatizing as many of the lower level things as you can to free your time and your mind for more advanced things. So you learn, it used to be that children uh, learn the multiplication tables by heart. I can remember flashcards and learning up to 10 times 10 rapid fire through practicing flashcards. Now the revolt against memorization, which is misplaced, has made a lot of that not automatized for a lot of children. And that means their mind is not free to go on to make fast connections among more difficult problems. So uh, if you haven't got your multiplication table down, you're not going to be good at trigonometry or calculus. And the idea that, you know, well, we've got calculators now, that, that is not a substitute. You, your mind can see a certain way, certain distance into the forest. And the more automatization you have, the higher a perch you have to see deeper in the forest. So you can know where the treasure is or where the oasis is or whatever it is your goal is in the forest. <laughs> Miss the first part, says one question. How much is this a method for managing fear? meaning the last week with Gene Maroney. How much of this is a method for managing fear? Fear seems like an, a unique emotion in that it can't, you can't necessarily think your way through it. And he apologizes for the wording. Again, this is more Gene's purview than mine, but it sounds like a very negative perspective. This is a method for getting what you want and you want to pay some attention to fear and pain, but not to manage them or to make terms with them or to give them too much attention. The main attention is on reality, on what's there, what is in it for you, what you like out there and how to get to it and thinking about that. I'm sure that Gene could give a uh, longer and better answer. 
I'd like to ask, what does Harry Benchwanger think of the concept a priori knowledge? The same thing I think of the concept of cold fire or solid uh, gas. It's a contradiction. I don't think it makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. I'll tell you a little story. Objectivism rejects the concept of a priori. A priori knowledge means knowledge independent of the senses. Knowledge you have before you use your senses or the senses being irrelevant to gaining that knowledge. It actually means before, but it, in a wider sense, it means independent of the senses. I used to be, I, when I came into objectivism in 1962, there was nothing but Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged to explain philosophy with. And many things I was hearing in my classes, I didn't know how to evaluate. And I thought I was in favor of a priori knowledge. I thought everything could be deduced from A as A. I once tried to give a proof of the objectivist ethics that life is the stand, man's life is the standard of morality, starting with A as A. And I had 14 propositions and they were labeled, I think it's 14, what is it, M is 14th letter? It was A through M. And the only logic I could say was A and B and C and D and E and F and G and H and I and J and K and L imply M, which of course totally begged the question and was not the right way to approach it at all. But in my defense, I was 17 or 18 at the time and there was nothing written. So I thought, yeah, we're in favor of a priori. That's, that's what has to be, that's logic. Uh, and um, I got in 1965 to have an extended conversation with someone who actually knew some philosophy from talking to Ayn Rand and her associates, and that was Alan Gotthelf, who was uh, ahead of me. I was coming into Columbia that later that year to go to grad school in philosophy, and he had been there a year, and he was you know, uh, got better ideas from people who knew something. And he said that Leonard Peikoff, who was one of the people he knew, had once picked up a spoon and said to him, there's nothing more certain than that this spoon is here. And that was shocking to me. No, no, that's not what, Two plus two is four is more A is A is, but that this spoon that I'm looking at is that, that, no. But now I understand and A is A and two plus two is four are just ways of uh, generalizing from the spoon is there and the plate is there and the food is here. Let's eat. So no, it is, it is completely wrong. It is, uh, Plato and Platonism. <clears throat> All knowledge comes from the senses and deduction presupposes induction. Induction is generalization from sensory observation. This person says, I want to be a philosopher. Do I need a PhD? 
Not necessarily. If so, what criteria should I use to select the best PhD program for me, given my abilities and interests? For context, I already have a bachelor's degree in nursing, so I am not wholly uneducated and I'm familiar with academia. No, you don't, you're not familiar with academia. Nursing is a rational profession taught pretty rationally to serious people. When, we, when I think of academia, I think of philosophy departments. And I'll tell you, for instance, one of many, many, many stories. I was uh, teaching as a part-time instructor, instructor at Hunter College in New York City. And I made no secret, I was pretty open and, and out there about my objectivism, my admiration for Ayn Rand. And I didn't propagandize, but it was clear that uh, I was a zealot for, to, you know, as they would put it, for Ayn Rand. So there was a new high professor, a full professor that Hunter had hired for a very large salary in those days, what the, with the dollar worth what it was. And he was talking to another member of the department. And in the midst of, he said, first of all, he said, I like Suzuki. Suzuki says that existence goes in and out of being in the time a man in vigorous health can snap his fingers. And then out of the corner of his eye, he turns or, you know, turns his head and he sees me sitting there. Okay. He sees me sitting there and he turns to me and he says, I know what you think. You think existence exists, which is the famous phrase of Ayn Rand. That's nonsense. So that's academia, okay? Now to answer your question, I would you know, really look into, do you wanna be a philosopher? And if so, do you wanna be an academic philosopher? It's a valid choice, but to pursue academic philosophy, I mean, there's so many things to say. To pursue academic philosophy is a long struggle and you're not likely to succeed. There are no very successful academic philosophers who are objectivists. There are objectivists who have been in academic philosophy for many years. And some of them have achieved a certain modest success uh, Alan Gotthelf was one, he is now the late Alan Gotthelf, but uh, he achieved a certain renown, but that's because he achieved it in ancient Greek philosophy with his research into Aristotle. The objectivism was merely tolerated. So uh, you're not likely to get anywhere in it. You maybe can get a position, it's very hard very hard. There are 500 applicants for every job opening in philosophy. And uh, it's not a great life. Your colleagues are not the kind of people you would seek out as friends, let us say. The other path, but if you want it, if you can't live without it, then go for it. Then I'll answer your question. What would be the way to pick a graduate school? Pick a graduate school that will get you to your goal. If your goal is to be 
I have a decent job to get a good job teaching philosophy and have colleagues pay any attention to what you say at all, then you need to go to a prestigious university. You can find lists of what the prestigious universities are online. Uh, they rank them, but they're familiar names like Harvard, Yale. Well, not Yale, actually not so much. Michigan, uh, Princeton, Rutgers is kind of surprising. NYU, a few years ago at least, was number one. <clears throat> so you want to go to a graduate school where people will be impressed and consider you for a job if that's what you're after. The other route is to be a public intellectual. You can either go on your own or maybe you can get a job for the Ayn Rand Institute. We hire philosophers. Maybe what you want is not exactly philosophy, but uh, advocacy for objectivist ideas. You don't have to be a philosopher to at all, you know, to be an effective spokesperson for, well, I shouldn't say spokesperson, exponent, proponent, speaker on these ideas. Uh, but you need to get some background and it's helpful to study the history of philosophy. It's helpful because you understand the truth better when you see the alternatives to it. So by studying Plato, Descartes, Kant, I was going to say Hegel, but it's impossible to study Hegel, reading about Hegel, you learn more what an incredible, independent, right-thinking philosopher Ayn Rand was. I'm assuming that that's the philosophy you're interested in. If you're not an objectivist, you have a brighter future in academia, but you have a dimmer future in terms of being happy. Uh, I, th I don't know how many more I can take because we're at the end of time. Let me just read this one. I think we'll stop here and, and get a backlog for the next Ask Harry Anything. Um, we kind of falsified that a little bit here today because there were some questions about psychology, which I attentively forayed into, but I think it would be better asked of my wife. Uh, we'll have her back on uh, in the near future. I haven't got a date yet, but she'll be coming back. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next week on HBTV.